Why Can't You Trust the Law of Gravity? Because it keeps letting you down. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 61 of Starting Sustainability. Today, I have a fascinating interview about Counting Coral, a new nonprofit started, created, led by Jolion Collier. Before we get to the interview, I want to catch up with Kaylin. In the last episode, I shared that I got a leaf razor for Christmas, and I wanted to give you an update. Wow, that thing is sharp. <laughs> it's very, very sharp. I cut myself four times shaving my legs. I haven't cut myself shaving since the sixth grade. That's how sharp this thing is. <laughs> it's definitely going to take some getting used to. I just need to learn how to hold the razor and apply proper pressure. So parts of my legs are super smooth and nicked and the other parts are a little stubbly because I was hesitant to push hard enough. <laughs> it, so I recommend you allow a learning curve for new technique when it comes to safety razors, specifically the leaf razor. But other than that, I really do like it. And unfortunately, Leaf Razor does not have an affiliate program. So I was unable to get a coupon or discount for the listeners of Sustainer Nation. Also, after I recorded last week's episode, I remembered I forgot to share a Christmas story. In previous episodes, I mentioned that we go to the in-laws every year for Christmas. So we don't really have that much Christmas stuff. I did, however, want to make Christmas cookies with my kids. The thing to remember is that my husband is an electrician and frequently services a cookie factory nearby, so we get cookies whenever we want them. Therefore, I did not have cookie cutters or a rolling pin. <laughs> and I really didn't want to buy new ones, because that's a personal goal of mine is to buy less stuff. After thinking and putting on my problem-solving cap, I called around and ended up borrowing some cookie cutters from my sister and a rolling pin from my neighbor. And I was so proud too because I borrowed instead of buying brand new and then I got to return the items and not clog up my kitchen drawer, attempting minimalism, which I've had my eye on for some time. And then guess what I got for Christmas? That's right. My neighbor gave me a rolling pin and my family and friends gifted me cookie cutters because they heard that I had to borrow them. <laughs> Their intentions were good, but this, this right here is why sustainability is hard sometimes. Few people understand and support my efforts. <laughs> they think they're doing a good thing, so I just smile and say thank you. You know what else I did at Christmas? I way overcooked the ham. Now, in my defense, it did not come with instructions, so I just looked up a recipe. It turned out so dry and tough. I attempted using it for leftovers, but recooking it in any new dish made it even more chewy. So then I got the bright idea to borrow a dehydrator and make ham jerky. And of course, I didn't really know anybody with a dehydrator, so I just put it up on my personal Facebook, and a lady from my church said I could borrow hers. I didn't even know that she had one. And she even told me, we've had it for a few years and never used it. <laughs> so, <laughs> But I plugged it in, and it, the ham jerky turned out really well. So it did not go in the trash. And that was how I saved Christmas dinner. After Christmas comes New Year's. And what are Sustainer Nation's New Year's resolutions? I asked this on the Facebook group. And here's what they said. Amanda said that she wants to take a foraging class, which I really, really want to do that. I'm excited. So I'm right there with you, Amanda. And Kaylee says she wants to eat more plant-based meals and transition into vegetarianism. Good job, Kaylee. Emily says she wants to switch plastic products to more sustainable options. An excellent good first step into sustainability. Neil says he wants to reduce needless consumption. Yes, good job, Neil. And Karen says she wants to start cooking at home more. I also love this. I love cooking at home and cooking from scratch. My issue is time. <laughs> but whenever I can, I do it. With the exception of ham. These are all fantastic New Year's resolutions. And maybe you have a resolution to learn more about sustainability. And if you're a northerner sick of the cold weather, then you're really going to appreciate my next guest. 
I brought them in to help us dream of warm ocean beach vacationing to get us through the rest of the winter and to look forward to spring break. Jolly on Collier with Counting Coral is doing great things to assist with restoring the coral in the ocean. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Starting Sustainability. Did you know that coral reefs only occupy less than 1% of the ocean floor and support 25% of all marine life? 50% of the world's reefs are now gone, and it is crucial that we protect what is left and restore what has been destroyed. How do we do that? Counting Coral is a company with a solution. I have Jolien Collier on a Zoom call with me. Jolien, say hello and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. So I am, I would say, 50 years old. I hate to admit that. <laughs> and uh, I am currently retired. However, I think I might be coming out of retirement for, a, uh, for another project that's going to help uh, further along my nonprofit organization. I've, I've retired and started a nonprofit. So the nonprofit is, as you just mentioned, called Counting Coral, and we're saving coral reefs uh, one art piece at a time. Awesome. So I did do some researching on your website, and I saw that you are an artist, avid surfer, and diver, and all-around ocean man. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, I've been an ocean person all my life, and I can't wait to get back into it. I, I haven't been in the ocean in about three months, and it's killing me. Is that because of coronavirus? Yeah, Corona. We've actually moved. We we lived in California, in Los Angeles, in that area, specifically in Malibu. So we, you know, I get to surf every day and be in the ocean. And uh, we have escaped to the desert because we have a house out in uh, Sedona, Arizona. So we've been here for eight months, just uh, in a very small town, enjoying um, the natural beauty of this area and escaping the big cities and all the problems uh, that these guys are facing with the city life and COVID. So it did say that you're an avid surfer. Can you tell us about your favorite marine life encounter? Oh, yeah, there's millions of them. So uh, I'll go into a little bit of a story about that if you have, if we have the time. So I um, traveled the world uh, when I was in my early 20s. I took a year out. My first stop was Fiji. I'd surfed a lot prior to that. But being in the tropics was a very magical thing because you know, you're, say, paddling towards a wave as it's about to crash on top of you. Well, it would lift up. It'd be crystal clear. And you could see turtles swimming in the in this big, giant, giant wave. And you'd see sharks swimming through it and parrotfish and angelfish. And it was just like, it was just a magical experience. So ever since, you know, I've, I've seen that, I've never, ever thought of anywhere else better to surf than the tropics even though I do surf a lot in Malibu the tropics is the place for me because it's such crystal clear waters so I would say the best experience and there's been a few of them the first one was in Malibu I was surfing and I was looking at this kayaker taking pictures of the water and I just couldn't figure out why is this guy just taking pictures of kelp you know there's nothing there you know he's not putting the camera in the water there was nothing there and all of a sudden I saw this whale pop up maybe four feet away from him and it, it blew out its air it's just like it's, I was like oh my goodness that's why this guy's taking pictures so I, I I swear to god I've never paddled so fast and hard in my life I had to go probably 50 yards and I got to this whale and at that point, he'd already gone down once, but then come up just as I reached him. He blew again, then went down. And I got to see the entirety of this uh, whale within maybe 10 feet. It was an incredible experience. So that was one of them. And then another one is um, in Tonga. So there's this remote island group uh, north of the main island of Tonga. And it's a, quite an effort to get to, to be fair. And once you're there, it's really difficult to get out to the surf. So I saw this VW van stacked with these boards and I was like, oh man, I've got to talk to these people because they know where the surf is and how to get to it. I went out to him and said, hey boys, I want to surf, let me know. And uh, I managed to hustle a boat ride out to this really remote island uh, in a remote island chain in, in Tonga. And uh, we jumped into the water and we started surfing and Tonga has crystal clear waters. And then I heard the song of humpbacks and I could just hear them singing underneath me. And I was just like, oh, man, that is incredible. Oh, wow. So I dove down and I listened to them. And then fortunately, they came closer and closer and closer. And I got to uh, surf with humpback 
Wales and Tonga. Wow, so cool. So jealous. <laughs> so <Right>? cool. <laughs> there are so many things going on with the ocean that are hurting the ocean, like the different life and the plastic and the coral dying. So what pushed you to focus on restoring coral over any other way that you could have helped out in the ocean? Well, I guess you've got to start with the concept of uh, helping on the land before you go to the ocean. So we've got numerous problems, countless, countless, hundreds of problems, if you really want to get into the minutiae of it. Um, so I could have started an organization called Counting Trees. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we are in a situation where we know what to do. We can plant millions and millions of trees in such rapid uh, ways, Ethiopia, uh, set the record for 360 million trees in tw uh, 24 hours, and they beat India by 60 million. Uh, in India did hold the record for 300 million trees planted in a day. So we know what we know what we can do. We can uh, plant enough trees and restore our grasslands and our agricultural lands to be able to sequester carbon. And carbon's the number one killer when it comes to ocean problems and corals. So what people may not understand is uh, CO2 is pumped into the atmosphere. It's called global warming. That heat gets trapped in our atmosphere. And as we've all experienced, storms are getting stronger, temperatures are rising. Well, the oceans absorb those temperatures and they absorb them at a rate of five atom bombs per second. If you can imagine the energy that is absorbed by the ocean uh, through it, atmospheric heat building up is astonishing. So what that does is it heats up the oceans along with, you know, cities and uh, deserts and stuff like that. Everything starts to get hotter, but the oceans are absorbing these heats, so they heat up too. Now, coral can only survive in a very small range of heat uh, fluctuations. So, you know, it could be 75 to 85, for instance. And if it goes above 85, then these corals start to suffer and die. And that's exactly what's happening. Coral uh, bleaching was first kind of witnessed back in the 90s. And since the 90s, it was like, no, oh, every 15 years is a little bleaching. Uh, and bleaching doesn't necessarily mean coral death. Uh, corals can survive bleaching events. But what we found lately, uh, as these events start creeping in more and more, uh, notably 2015, 16, 17, and 2020, so it's happening you know, an increasingly uh, rapid pace now, uh, these corals are now no longer being able to survive these fluctuations because it's going on for longer periods of time and the, the, the ocean temperature is hotter than it's ever been. So give you an example, in the northern part of Great Barrier Reef, some of the ocean temperatures are reaching 97 degrees and that is incredibly warm and uh, coral animal life cannot survive those temperatures. It's like so, walking into a hot tub. Exactly. So I picked coral as uh, the thing that I want to focus on. A, because I love the ocean. I love coral. Spent a lot of time diving with it, videographing it, um, documenting it. And it is one of the hardest ones, if you can imagine, to save. We know how to grow trees. We know how to restore our grasslands. We know what to do in terms of cutting emissions. We don't know what to do with the ocean. This is an exponential problem that's going to uh, really hit us hard in the next 10 years. And to be fair, I don't think the science is really in in the sense of how we just don't know what's going to happen when these ocean temperatures rise. We know corals are going to die, but what's going to happen to all the fish, plankton blooms, it's just such a mystery and we're playing a very dangerous game. So that's why I picked coral. So real quick, you use the term coral bleaching. Can you explain what that is exactly? Yeah, so I should guess we should start talking about coral as an animal. So what a lot of people don't understand is that it, it is an animal and it is a plant and it is a rock. <laughs> so you wouldn't be mistaken if you thought that coral was just a stony, you know, object on the bottom of the sea floor. Uh, and you wouldn't be mistaken if you thought it was a plant or an animal. It is an animal, but it has plant-like features and it is, uh, has a calcium body that is um, built up with agronite. Uh, it's a form of calcium carbonate. So it has this exoskeleton, if you want to call it that. Um, and it kind of forms like a rock, like a limestone kind of uh, look and feel to it. Um, but coral has a symbiotic relationship. 
Now, not all corals do this. Uh, you know, the, there's, we're still discovering many different types of coral around the world. But for the basic coral um, species, they have an algae inside them. And that algae actually gives coral the color. So if you've never seen a piece of coral, um, look it up online and you'll see how beautiful these colors can be. And now that is essentially this symbiotic relationship with algae. Now, algae essentially thinks that the coral is getting a little sick once, it start, once the ocean temperatures start to rise. So this algae is living inside this coral and it's feeding the coral um, through photosynthesis, essentially, even though corals do have little mouths on them which can collect you know, debris that floats back past. But its primary relationship is food. Algae supplies the food for the coral. Now, when the ocean temperatures rise, the algae goes, whoa, what's going on here? This coral doesn't seem right. feels a little sick. Um, so it leaves the coral in, in a kind of a, like a survival mode going, we don't want to be around this host anymore. We're out of here. So coral bleaching is essentially the algae leaving and then that color leaves because essentially the algae was that color that produced inside the uh, coral structure. So when a coral goes white, it's essentially losing its food source, which is the algae. And the algae can come back and the coral can survive this bleaching event. But what's happening more and more is uh, that's not happening and corals are dying at an alarming rate. And despite the fact that a white piece of bleach coral looks beautiful, uh, that is misleading. That is basically the signs of a coral starving to death. Wow. So thank you for explaining all of that. And while I was listening, I kind of had an epiphany moment a long time ago, um, almost 10 years ago. I did a study abroad to Australia. While you're getting ready to go on a big trip, I'm asking and telling people I'm going to Australia. What should I do? What should I see? Asking people who have been. And my uncle had been and he said, don't bother with the Great Barrier Reef. They make it look like it's so beautiful in all the pictures. But when you get there and you snorkel, it's just not that pretty. And now you had mentioned the water temperatures have risen in the last 15 or so years. And that's why the coral reef is pastel. It's not as pretty as it used to be. Now it makes sense. I didn't get that before. Yeah. And to be honest, I didn't enjoy the Great Barrier Reef. I was there 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, we just see a lot of destruction going on over there with boats dropping anchors all over the coral, which was completely, uh, completely beyond my scope of comprehension. And just the lack of awareness back in those days. And now the awareness is obviously first and foremost for most Australians and all the um, coral conservation groups there because they're losing it. They've lost 50% of all of the Great Barrier Reef. So if you can imagine, this is 2,500 kilometers long and in some places over a mile wide, you've lost 50% of this animal life. Now, if I said to you, hey, let's go to the Serengeti and watch wildebeests in the millions walking around, and then within one day, 5% of those are laying on the ground dead, you'd be like seriously concerned and you'd probably be beside yourself going, "This, we need to stop this. Uh, and yet coral underneath the water, people don't really see it. It's not in their consciousness. They don't even know what it is half the time. So to try and convey that message that in a space of one year, you can lose almost five to 10% of a coral reef is pretty tragic. And then if you look at the northern part of the Great Barrier Reef, they're losing up to 97% of their reefs. So you're looking at a just a mass die off event and, uh, Coral reefs are seriously important for us as a humanity and um, us just in general to be able to say to ourselves, look, we need to protect our environment at all costs across the board from forests to oceans to glaciers. We really need to pay attention to it very quickly. Exactly. Out of sight, out of mind. And if like me, you're landlocked, you're really not even thinking about what's going on in the ocean because it's so far away. So it's just not really in our daily life scope. What is counting coral going to do to help restore all of the coral? So we actually are not doing anything to restore coral. We're actually kind of supporting the people to support coral. Um, so what we do is we design and uh, build, donate and install uh, sculptural uh, marine sites 
So they're a sculptural park, essentially, that divers can go and dive on. But the primary focus is these are designed for coral nurseries. Now, there's a lot of uh, ocean sculpture designers that will do artificial reefs. They'll do, you know, really impactful concrete sculptures, but they're not specifically designed as coral nurseries. And that's where we are a little bit different to the other organizations out there is we're designing coral nurseries for the guys doing the work. So if you can imagine this for one second, that you have a reef restoration program going on, and I'm going to use Fiji as an example because that's where we're working. Um, you have this organization and they're harvesting what they call super corals. Now, super corals are corals that have survived a bleaching event. So if you imagine just for argument's sake, there's a 10 by 10 square area on the seafloor and 90% of it dies and one coral survives. Well, what they do is they go after that coral because it's known to survive an event. Now you can cultivate those corals because they're gonna survive another event because they've already done it once. They've started to establish this kind of immunity to the heat. Now that's not to say if it went so far in terms of temperatures, it wouldn't die, but we've got to try our best, right? So we go after that type of coral. Now we plant those onto our sculptural uh, nurseries and we let them grow. So what the coral nurseries then become is the artificial reef. Um, it's kind of a haven for fish. So uh, we plant them, we put our sculptures close to a reef where uh, the small cleaner fish uh, can come and migrate over to our sculpture. And then the larger fish have an area to hang out and be protected from larger predators. So you've got the nursery then goes to an artificial reef. Now the reason why we make them sculptural like, and these are contemporary cool art pieces, is because we want to divert diver traffic. Now, what people don't understand is divers have a huge impact in the uh, death and breakdown of reefs. Um, one of them is like just the basic chemicals that come off of sunscreen. So, you know, a diver will be on the boat, super hot, they plaster themselves in sunscreen, then they go diving on a reef. All those chemicals go and kill and harm the coral. They also grab the coral, snap the coral, stand on the coral, believe it or not. So then our sculptural parks become uh, a redirect for that diver traffic because it's an unusual thing that people haven't really seen before. So... When you're diving, you're always looking for that adventurous thing. It could be cave diving, shark diving, reef diving, drift diving. So this is something that really appeals to divers to say, oh, let's go dive on that sculptural park. It looks really cool. And they're doing some good work. So we redirect that diver traffic. And then that becomes a revenue stream for these dive operators because they have an added marketing angle that they can angle to their divers to say, hey, come dive with us because we get to dive on this sculptural marine park. Now, what that does is it creates stakeholders in the whole process. So you have the guys that are doing the reef restoration work. Then you have the dive operators. Both are invested and they become stakeholders in this. The coral gardeners have a super solid structure to be able to grow their corals on and study them in a very controlled environment. The dive operators get to bring divers out and show them and spread the message and awareness of, you know, coral reef problems and the issues it's having. But also what we've tried to engineer within our program is we ask those dive operators to upcharge just slightly on their dive and then donate that money back to us and then we donate that to the local communities in Fiji for uh, community projects. The Fijian people are somewhat not as fortunate when it comes to revenues and monies, and some of them are still living in grass huts in very subsistent type living styles. So if we could provide a pump to be able to pump water out of a well, we've done a great job. So it becomes a very full cycle thing that we're trying to do. It's not just about growing coral. It's about driving awareness, getting divers off these beautiful and very fragile reefs, giving back to the community that's allowed us to put these sculptures in their reefs and providing a very cool and scientific work area for the people doing the good work of restoring the reefs. Can you describe the sculptures? I'm imagining like different art pieces laid out on a path that you would have to swim through. And we're talking like what you would see at a regular garden or on a fountain out, out in front of a big business. Is it kind of like that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that fountain is a very good analogy. So um, some of our sculptures reach about six to 10 feet. It depends on the design and the location of where we're putting them. And they're very Art Nouveau styles. Um, it kind of looks like those wrought iron lamp stands that used to have back in the early, uh, I'd say, 40s that were all really ornate ironwork. And there was like a lampshade and a lamp in it. Well, you know, the top of the lamp where the lampshade would be is essentially where we plant all the coral. And then at the bottom, we have these flowers. And these flowers are kind of like a, a lotus flower. And they're very cleverly designed in the sense that we have three petals on them and these uh, stand off the ground. So what we do is we drive stakes into the sand and we slide these flower tubes over the stake to hold it so it doesn't fall over. And then there's a little plate on top of that stake. And then from that plate, there's three petals that like lift up as a, if you imagine what a rose bud would look like prior to opening up to a flower. And inside that, there's a little tube and we place these fragments of coral. Now, as those corals grow, say in three months, well, they might outgrow that space where the flower petals have closed. So what we do is we come and we bend those flower petals open. And as that coral grows, now branching coral can grow up to two feet wide. So as the time goes on, it could be a year to 18 months, we open those flower petals all the way up so it looks like there's this just beautiful pollen uh, coral right in the middle of this flower. And we have about 50 to 60 of these flowers arranged in kind of a crop circle kind of way. And obviously our designs change and, you know, they're different in different locations. But that's pretty much in a, pretty much in a nutshell what they uh, would look like as a crop circle, uh, all interlinking and connecting, creating this floral kind of maze garden of coral very descriptive that made it much easier to imagine it in my head <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah for the people that are listening just go to our website you can see some of that stuff uh cowandcoral.com it might be a little easier to uh see and there's some videos of me explaining it too and i've got full-scale models of what we're doing so people can uh, actually really immerse themselves in the design and how we're doing it so all these sculptures are made from steel. Do you use repurposed steel? Are you using stuff that you dig out of the oceans? No, no. Unfortunately, that is a model I have not been able to uh, accomplish. So one of the one of the issues is repurposing steel is kind of very difficult. Uh, if you can imagine from a, a nonprofit standpoint, we have such massive hurdles to overcome to even get to the point where we can put these sculptures in in the ground uh one of them being is fundraising uh, marketing video content i mean the list just goes on and on and on and now if i had to add the element of trying to rummage through i don't know where i'd even find this recycled materials but there's a lot of water jet companies that cut out patterns for people and the remnants are left in these massive remnant piles. If I had to do that, I would never get my work done. And then to the second point is we use marine grade uh, stainless steel. And the reason why we use this is it will last over 400 years. So if we are really effective with the coral restoration and we can further save coral, these gardens and coral nurseries will be around for a very long time. It was really in my consciousness to say, hey, I need to create something that can last a very, very long time that can be worked with with many different um, generations of people. So I just didn't want to add that element to it. And the other thing is because it lasts so long, this is kind of a one shot product. It's not going to deteriorate in the ocean and have to be replaced for, you know, like say up to 400 years. It is possible they might fall over, in which case we just pick them back up and, you know, move on. Yeah, I was wondering, I know there are some strong ocean currents and hurricanes can come through. And even though you're staking them down, I didn't know if a big storm would knock it over and ruin all of your hard work or if the coral would be able to stay attached where you can just put the sculpture back in an upright position you know we designed them with enough holes in all the sculptures that water flow uh, can actually flow through them very 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 well 
now, like again, again, I say, you know, the hundred year storm could come and rip it all off the ground, but you could have it all replaced within a couple of days. And if we did break off coral, like coral doesn't die immediately. So we can salvage the coral and plant them out onto table um, nurseries. If that ever did happen. You'd mentioned that people will invest into your program to help develop these. Who is investing or can people just buy them outright and where are they located? Do people put them under their dock? Are they located at marine centers or is it private organizations who put this all together? Well, so that's a very loosely term that I've used. But to your point, yes, it can come across as like, you know, say the Marriott builds a, and here's a good example in Fiji too, and Marriott has just built a major hotel uh, right by the ocean and they had to destroy some of the coastline and part of that rebuild was they have to have a reef restoration program so we could essentially sell our sculptural marine park to them and uh, again they have then a revenue stream that they can offer a new attraction to their guests so all of that is on the table but I also use the word invest because We, as a human race, don't invest in nature in any way, shape or form. What we do is we steal when we take and we destroy. So when I use that word, I use it to encourage people to understand that nothing's for free. If you imagine when you pick up your cell phone, a glass, a cup, a kettle, a toaster, drive your car, tarmac on the road, houses, concrete, framing, wood, you name it. It's all been stolen for nature. We don't pay taxes to nature. We don't do anything. Governments are just so pretty bad at even suggesting the mere idea that we would have a tax for nature. Um, So when I say invest, if you donate to us, you're investing in your future of your children. And this is one of the things that really kind of gets me a little bit frustrated. We have parents and I'm a parent. We do everything to protect our kids. We'll put helmets on the head if they're on a skateboard. We will give them the best shoes if they're running in a, you know, in a race. Uh, We will band-aid them if they scratch themselves. We'll give them uh, flu shots because we don't want them to get sick. I mean, the list of things that we do to protect our kid is astronomical. And yet we don't do anything to invest in their future for nature. In other words, stopping cutting down trees. We're not investing in any way, shape or form to help stop that or alleviate it. So that investment word is something that people really need to pay attention to, that it's okay to participate in restoring nature and giving back and uh, supporting nonprofits is arguably the best way to do that because across the board, nonprofits globally are the frontline workers because governments really aren't stepping up to the plate. So we're solely reliant on these organizations to do the good work. And if we're not investing in these organizations, we're not investing in our children's future, our future, and the future of humanity as a whole. All very, very excellent points. Definitely something to think about for sure. (laughs) I really like the point you made about everybody steals from nature. There are no taxes on natural items. Could you imagine a world where we did have taxes on natural resources you had to pay for sand and water and air? I bet people would care a whole lot more about the environment all of a sudden, not they have to pay for it. Well, let's be really clear about it. We do pay taxes on it, but it goes to a company and then it goes to a government, right? Yeah. I buy a bucket of sand. Well, I'm I'm paying for that bucket of sand by the guy that went, you know, dug the sand up, put it in the bucket, got it to Home Depot or a home center. And then I buy this bag or bucket of sand. I'm paying tax on it at the register, but I'm not paying tax for the hole in the ground, the giant great big machines that had to dig all that out and destroy nature. I'm paying nothing towards rebuilding those areas once they're done with it. And the companies don't rebuild mines. I mean, they really don't. It's, uh, it's a tragic state of affairs when you look at it. If we chop down a tree, we don't pay tax to plant three more uh, from the lumber companies. And these lumber companies just buy the land, chop down the trees and move on. They're not responsible in terms of paying back in any way, shape or form. It's in their best interest these days to do it because in 25 to 30 years, they've got another forest they can chop down and make more money from. Uh, across the board, no one pays tax uh, and it never goes back into nature. Um, you certainly don't have a, a government that's saying, hey, we're going to increase tax uh, by 2% and we're going to save our environment. That's never come out of their mouths once. 
I wish it would. Yeah, maybe, hopefully sometime soon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you think about like the nonprofit sector, only 2% of uh, revenues uh, go into the nonprofit sector. So you have billions of dollars going into uh, businesses as startup funds and all the rest of it. And we're down to 2% and it's never shifted in uh, 30 years. So we've, we've got to shift at some point to start increasing those monies from government grants. I mean, the government grants are just not doing anything. It's a, it's a mere drop in the ocean if you want to use the ocean analogy. <laughs> <laughs> well, back to the ocean. My understanding, the ocean is international, that nobody owns it. So how do you determine where you get to put your sculptures? I assume there's a lot of paperwork for permits and things of like that. Well, so that's uh, yeah, a bit of a misnomer. People do actually own the ocean. You know, Fiji's a great example. So local chiefs and uh, family clans own the reef rights. Uh, the government don't. So you would, uh, in that circumstance, and I'm using Fiji because that's where we're doing most of our work. We tried to go to Hawaii. We offered up an amazing deal to those guys and the red tape was just so this is one of the things people really have to understand the red tape you have to go through to actually do good work it is just stops you dead in your tracks and we worked for many months negotiating to try and get a marine park in hawaii and we just gave up you know my first port of call was to do it in the united states you know i wanted to benefit this culture and the people that live around the oceans in these beautiful environments to save their coral first. And it became so impossible that I went straight to Fiji because I've been down in Fiji for, for many, many years. So what we do is we go to these clans and we sit down with them, we drink kava and we negotiate a deal to say, hey, you know, if we put this sculpture marine park into your waters, uh, we will help raise money for community projects. And that's the way we do it down there. And across the world, you know, countries have all their own different uh, rules and regulations for coral reefs. Uh, Some are well, really, really relaxed, and some are incredibly difficult. Yeah, I imagine that there were. That's why I asked that question. I was like, there's no way this is as simple as it sounds. There's always hidden red tape, which is such a shame. Yeah, it it, it is. And, you know, some of those safeguards are there for a reason, obviously, but you know, when it gets to the point where you, and this is a deal I offered Hawaii, I said, I'll put a million dollar sculpture marine park into the waters off Oahu. We figured out that there was close to 30 dive operators. And in one year, we could minimally raise around $500,000 through the dive operators for much for the reason that I said earlier is this is an attraction. So for instance, you know, there's a submarine off of the coast of Oahu, that you can boat out to this submarine, jump on board, go under and look at a wreck on the bottom of the seafloor and a seaplane, you know, a plane that went down in the, the war of Pearl Harbor. They've allowed this submarine to do it. These guests go out and they spend a fortune sitting in a submarine and viewing these wrecks on the ground. So I said to him, look, I can raise $500,000 that every single year I will donate back into your reef, reef restoration projects. I will help with these refrestoration project projects and you can use our site as a scientific study site. And it was just falling on deaf ears. They just weren't interested. Now, arguably, I could have gone to all the wrong people. But when you look at the list of people you've got, got to go to, you've got to go to the Division of Aquatic Marine Resources. That's the first stop. And then you go to the HIMB, which is the Hawaiian Marine Institute of Marine Ecology. And you just go through this entire list of people. And then you just go, I, I give up. You're just not getting it. You know what I mean? And then they'll start kicking and screaming that the government's not giving them enough money to do reef restoration. It's just ludicrous when I look at the the way these guys approach stuff. Man, that's such a shame. <laughs> that's So what you do is you, okay, that's the road bump, and you move on over to Fiji and get it going there. And once Fiji is thriving, maybe then they'll listen, and hopefully it'll open their eyes. Yeah, by that point, I'll probably be locked into the Fiji because, you know, one thing that I do recognize in the U.S. is there's a ton of money to be able to have for it. Now, it just just for argument's sake, just say that the alarm bells went off, which they should have been going off 10 years ago. But all of a sudden, the alarm bells go off and there's a massive outreach uh, placed on the government to support coral reef restoration in the United States. Monies would be raised in a heartbeat. 
Now you do the same in a uh, third world or developing country. There's no way they have the resources to be able to save their corals. Here's a good example of that. So there's a biobank that is scheduled to be built off the Great Barrier Reef on land. It's a $264 million facility to be able to store these corals because they're losing them at such an alarming rate. So we are at the point of an extinction rate for this animal species. And we're now building essentially aquariums. It's kind of like you go to SeaWorld and you see fish and all that kind of stuff. Well, this is a SeaWorld for coral where they are now having a biobank where they can save these species um, from the Great Barrier Reef. Now, I can't take a species from Fiji and take it to Australia and then bring it back with any efficiency. So it's pretty much built for coral of Australia and the Great Barrier Reef. Now, that should be happening across the globe on every single reef system that has any noteworthy size. You know what I mean? So Fiji has one of the second largest fringing reefs in the South Pacific. So, you know, they're losing massive amounts of coral. So you imagine trying to scale that in a third world country and going, hey, we need millions of dollars to save this coral. It just won't happen. So I'm okay with being down in Fiji because the more we go down there and the more we harvest these super corals, the more likely we will have small pockets left that then at some point we could build out a biobank in uh, Fiji in the next 30 years. That is interesting about the biobank. I didn't know that that was going on. But on this podcast, we have talked about seed banks going around the world. And we even did a review of Down to Earth by Zach Efron and Netflix. And on there, they had gone to Argentina, I believe, and they had a potato bank. It's great to see that everybody's putting forth the effort to preserve what we have for seeds of potatoes and now coral. But like you said, it it's only going to help those right there when we need to do it for every location that has a major coral reef with all the different coral species. It's just ludicrous to me to think that we're at this point where we're now having to build multi-million dollar facilities to be able to house these species. We've come to that point in our life. We we can't address the big issue and correct that issue quick enough. It's just mind-boggling to me that we're at that point. And it's kind of like, well, we're going to build these facilities. Well, no, we don't need to build those facilities if we just correct what we're doing immediately We just cannot keep going the way we're going. It has to stop. Time is definitely of the essence. When your sculptures are installed, how long does it take for it to be considered a restored coral reef? That's a weird one because we're working with a guy down in Australia, uh, sorry, in Fiji. His name is uh, Austin Kirby, and he's a marine scientist, marine biologist, and uh, he is really, really pushing for the spawning aspect of corals. So what we do is we harvest these super corals, we put them onto the sculptures, and then they spawn. But we're putting these sculptures in such a way that when they spawn, these spawning coral, you know, essentially eggs and sperm and all the rest of it float into these channels. They're like, you know, um, gullies, essentially, that have faster, like, uh, moving currents, in which case they can now outplant themselves, to, <laughs> essentially, you know what I mean? Because we've harvested a very strong strain of coral. So those eggs and sperm are going to be able to land on a reef and actually create these more durable corals elsewhere. So it's really hard to quantify that. But basically... It just for argument's sake, say we take a hundred fragments and in six months we get a thousand fragments, and then those thousand fragments go out onto a reef. Within six months to a year to two years, you could safely say you've restored that reef. But we've got to understand how difficult that is. I used the analogy earlier about the trees. We can plant 360 million trees in 24 hours. You imagine planting the same amount of coral, it's impossible. You have to take an open water one course that costs you almost $1,000. you got to buy the equipment to be able to dive. That costs you about $1,000. Then you want to do open water two, advanced diving and rescue diving, so you feel safe in the water and competent that you could rescue a fellow friend or be able to navigate yourself out of an issue because you're not a novice diver, you're now an experienced diver. And then you only have an hour per tank to go in the water. You imagine how incredibly difficult that would be to plant out 2,500 kilometers of the Great Barrier Reef that's a mile wide with tens of thousands of corals that need to be planted. 
it's an incredible problem that we've got going on right now. So we have to understand that if we develop these corals that can spawn, they're essentially doing the job for us. It's a lot of work, but it's a very positive thing that you're doing, and it's a wonderful impact that you're having. So you did discuss you attempted going to Hawaii, and you are currently in Fiji. Are there any other locations counting coral is available? Yeah, we're, we're working with another organization called um, Ocean Rescue Alliance in Florida, and we just discussed potentially doing a sculpture. So th- these guys do artificial reefs as well, and their artificial reefs are designed to blend in, so they look more natural, where ours just stand out. We have kind of different models and approaches to how we do our installations, but our installations can certainly embellish what their work is doing Uh, in conjunction to their work. So we're currently considering donating a sculpture to uh, these guys in Florida for maybe a U.S. installation because they've worked for years upon years upon years to get these permits done. They've been working for, you know, a considerable amount more years than we have. So they've established the relationships with the various city officials and people that allocate permits Fingers crossed that that one goes through for you. My heart goes out to Florida. I lived there for a couple of years. and I feel like that state just gets beat up by hurricanes and, <laughs> and the mangroves disappearing and the red bloom and all that stuff. So please help them as much as you can. Yeah, I, I would love to be in the U.S., like I said. And uh, if we can negotiate that and get that done, I would be one happy person. So if listeners of the podcast want to learn more about Counting Coral, you told us to go to the website, but what are your other social media platforms? Uh, across the board, you know, YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all at Counting Coral. Uh, if you're on YouTube, just type in Counting Coral. Uh, we have um, some amazing content creators that create, you know, climate change videos for us, uh, small inf- info videos about coral reefs and certain uh, fish species and stuff like that. They're all great content that you can just go in and like and comment on our videos. We really do appreciate that as being a nonprofit. It's very important for us to get a little morale booster now and then. So when people comment and like our stuff, it really does mean a lot to us. And if listeners of Sustainer Nation want to get involved, what all can they do? Yeah, we have intern programs, we have volunteer programs, and we now have uh, an organization kind of set up by one of our interns called Students for Coral. And one of the really important things we need to understand is getting young people involved in this is super important because if that's ingrained into their consciousness, as they grow up, the awareness has already been built in. Uh, This is not something we have to teach somebody. It's already been taught. So this uh, young lady, Aria Ma, who is one of our interns, has gone throughout her county of Maryland uh, and got all the high schools involved in Students for Coral. So if you're a young person, uh, you can certainly uh, join that little organization and be a part of that. And we do have volunteers. If they want to do some fundraising in the local communities, we can create campaigns for them and they can run their own fundraising campaigns. Unfortunately, due to COVID, we're not doing any events, but we do have events planned to do on land based art exhibits of the sculptures prior to installation. So, uh, you know, we would be on a beach in, say, San Diego or Malibu and we'd set the whole sculptural park up uh, for a weekend and then people can come out and view it and obviously help uh, with supporting us with volunteer work to uh, work the tents and put our sculptures together, but also it's an awareness driver and hopefully we can raise uh, monies through those events too. If listeners are landlocked, is there anything that they can do to help? You know, for like more adult business people, just say you're into marketing or you're a content creator and you want to create some videos for us. Uh, jump on, give it, send us a message. Uh, if you're into um, being a social media intern and you want to run our social media, Instagram feeds and Facebook feeds, uh, you know, we're constantly cycling interns and volunteers. So uh, the more the merrier. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and taking the time to tell us all about all of your hard work with Counting Coral. I do have a quick game that I would like to play with you because I like to do that with all of my guests. <laughs> Got to end on a fun note. Let's do it. All right. So I saw on your bio on your website that tacos are your favorite food. Is that correct? 
Yes, it is. Yes. Okay. What we're going to do, I guess it's not really so much a game as much as it is an activity. Are you familiar with the BuzzFeed quizzes? No, 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 no. Go for it. That sounds good. We're going to take a quiz of what kind of taco are you? (laughs) Okay, go for it. Okay, so the first question is, what do you drink with your tacos? And your options are water, iced tea, lemonade, or soda. Ooh, water. How do you like to spend a fake sick day? Do you like to hang out with friends, sleeping, just chilling, or trying a new restaurant? A fake sick day. Since I'm self-employed and my own boss, I've got to just lie to myself all day long. And I would say hanging out with friends, going to a restaurant. What is your favorite type of music to listen to? Hip hop, pop, country, or rock and roll? Oh, can you blend hip hop and rock and roll? <laughs> no, yeah, you got to pick one. Uh, I would go for, um, I'd say hip hop. Okay. And what is your favorite color? Pink, blue, yellow, or red? Blue for the ocean. And what is your favorite social media platform? Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or Snapchat? Uh, Instagram. It says that you're a chicken taco. Ah! (laughs) I'm a vegetarian. (laughs) (laughs) But you are a classic, fun, and appreciate life's simple pleasures. (laughs) Uh, But am I the chicken eating the taco? (laughs) You know, you can be. That's okay. You could could be a vegetarian chicken (laughs) taco. (laughs) All right. Well, I appreciate you, again, sharing all this information with us. It's really been quite an eye-opener. I haven't really done any episodes on the ocean other than the plastic in the ocean, but there's so much more to it and the destruction going on and how we can all help. So thank you for answering all the questions and taking the time to explain it all and definitely humoring me and taking the taco quiz. It's been really fun. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, I will let you get on with your busy work. Thank you again and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you again, for all your hard work. We wish you the best of luck in your endeavors and hope you're able to get a project here in the U.S. and all over the world so we can one day be a visitor and take a tour of your beautiful creations. For more information, go to CountingCoral.com or go to StartingSustainability.com slash episode 61 for the show notes and links with more information. Stay tuned for next week when I talk to Austin Sachs about Ethic, a new web browser extension to help you make informed decisions on if a restaurant is sustainable or not when eating out or having a meal delivered. Thank you for tuning in again, Sustainer Nation. And now I am off to pack bags because we are taking a trip to our in-laws. Since we weren't able to go for Christmas, it was delayed. So now we're going in the middle of January, but at least they live in Texas. So it'll be a slightly warmer weather break from frigid, nasty, cloudy, gray, yucky Indiana. In the meantime, continue to stay sustainable and you will hear me again next week. Bye.